1: back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This is our Season 2 wrap-up for Electric Bukaloo. So we'll depart from the usual format. We're not going to be covering a chapter. I'll include a short interview with Arthur Njamfa. Arthur is at the London School of Economics. He specializes in international relations with emphasis in Chinese. So he's a student of Chinese and geography and economics and international relations. He's also just a really funny guy, and I've enjoyed talking with him. Arthur and I started corresponding about ethnicity and ethnic constructs in Game of Thrones, and I thought that they were interesting enough that maybe we ought to include it for a wider listenership. So that's about a 20-minute interview with Arthur, and then we'll do about 45 minutes with Steve where we answer listener feedback and get his take on some of the news relative to new Game of Thrones content. Just a warning, if you have kids in the rooms, there are certain elements of the Steve portion that you might not want to have the kids in the room for. Just a heads up about that. Finally, in the bird's eye view section, I'll reflect a little bit on the listener feedback that I got relative to my recent survey about the shape of Electric Boogaloo Going forward, so this will be the last uh, Electric Bukaloo for a few weeks. If you're not caught up, go ahead and get caught up to Chapter 20. So in a few weeks, we'll be back with Chapter 20, and Steve and I will begin our coverage of Season 3. Without further ado, here is Boseman Man Aarón.
0: Ask Aarón anything.
1: Aaron, what is the three right turns episode that you feel most proud of
0: oh man i don't know i well you're thinking uh, about i'm gonna tell you none mine. of them you did
1: one early <laughs> 2020 <laughs> uh-huh like something about the unbearable whiteness of being yeah being.
0: that that's right up there i thought that
1: was really good I, as far as you know as far as a white guy talking about whiteness I think you did your homework on that. Really worth, really worth a listen. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I think that that's one of the ones I'm proud of because I feel like it's one of the most me, like it's like unique. You know, talking about my German American, uh, you know, heritage and Jim's Italian American heritage and historical white. Like I, that's the. Honestly, that's like one of the things that like I I was I was digging out material that I've been thinking about for like 10 years, because that was one of the things that really started flipping my opinion from like, you know, we're living in a post racist society. And there's just a lot of people that are whining about stuff to like, oh, shit. No, actually, that's a complete pants on head take. And I'm way wrong, um, both historically and and in terms of current politics. Um, But I, I also like if. I think uh, don't blame me. I voted Al. Um, you know, like uh, mm. I, I think that's a really good takedown of like uh, first past to post voting. Um, I have to I, check I thought, that
1: one out. I don't. I don't think I remember that one.
0: Yeah, that one I thought was pretty pretty solid too. Um, but yeah, Swiss Bold Network. Everyone, if you want to go, wanna go check it my, out, SwissBold.com. Unbridled political thoughts. Yep.
1: If you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove dot com. London School of Economics. That's that's me. Yeah.
2: And how long I, and have you Chinese. been in
1: London? And Chinese, yeah. And
2: Chinese, yeah. So Chinese is half my degree. China, uh, the culture, the history, the mm-hmm. language.
1: Just really simple stuff. Easy. Yeah. Easy on- to- <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not tiring <laughs> at all. It's not a lot of work, you know. Super really scary.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, how long have you lived in London?
2: I've lived in London for half my life, uh, on and off. So, I've lived half my life in France and half my life in the UK because I'm I'm French as well. So,
1: were you born in France?
2: No. So, I was born in the UK. <laughs> then I okay. moved straight back to France. Then I moved back to UK, and I moved back to France, and I'm back. So I've gone forward and back.
1: So you you are an international, you are an international <laughs> exactly. man of mystery.
2: <laughs> Absolutely that that that's how I that's how I got into my degree. I I told them how multicultural I was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, all
1: right. So let's let's talk a little bit about Game of Thrones. So yeah, I I was fascinated by your email because my approach, and maybe because this is because I'm in the field of religious studies is to look Mm -hmm. at the differences between North and South in terms of either culture or religion or like class, class difference. Mm -hmm. And you suggested that maybe we ought to be thinking about this in terms of ethnicity too.
2: Yeah. So I was, I was just really interested in the idea that because I was really exploring the, the stories of the, of the first men and uh, the story about the Roynar coming out, over, and yeah. um, the fact that there is very much a different ethnicity between the central kingdoms and then the, the, the northern kingdoms, the well, northern kingdom, and then Dawn. And so I was thinking, what if there's something more than just class? An idea that they really have a different uh, ethnic identity. And that really means that there is a sense that they can't really respect an ethnic identity that is to them inferior to themselves. And so they kind of have a disregard for the lives of the Northerners. They can't really respect that a Northerner has been made hands. Perhaps perhaps that's been overcome between the friendship between Robert and uh, Ned. But that the others who have not had that one on one contact with Northerners still think them as inferior ethnically because, because they come from a a previous a previous ethnicity, a previous race. Um, I don't
1: even think that Ned and Robert have really overcome their differences.
2: No, perhaps not. <laughs> perhaps not. But he <laughs> <laughs> But he still makes him the hands, which surely must mean that, you know, he doesn't think that he's useless.
1: Yeah, I think there's something about Robert that, for whatever reason, he perceives Ned to be like a—I don't know, like a lesser version of himself, which makes him like a good drinking buddy or something.
2: Yes, that is but I don't—I don't really even feel like he knows Ned. No, that is that is that is the most uh, mind-boggling part of of Ned and Robert's relationship, isn't it? It's that although they seem so close and. Yeah. They seem to have such a tight relationship. I, I, I it, it's almost like they don't know each other. They keep expecting things from one another that really you can't really expect from one another. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Robert's like, come on, come come drink and lay with all these girls and then and then Ned is like, let's let's do the righteous thing. It's like, guys, I feel like you should have <laughs> you should have figured this out. <laughs>
1: So I think I think the strongest part of your case here Arthur is is probably Dorn. And part of this relates to you got your email got me thinking about this. Part of this mm-hmm. relates to the geography, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. Because it. not only do we have in Dorn sort of this Roinish shared history, shared memory of a common ancestor, or common homeland and the stories that they tell each other but but they're geographically separate enough so that they've been able to keep their ethnic identity somewhat distinct from the rest of Westeros.
2: Absolutely, and and for me, that kind of came from the fact that the, the first way I approached it was, uh, what if there's some kind of racial hierarchy going on here um, yeah. that makes the northers inferior? And and I was, it was really interesting your response, which was. Well, the Andals are um, inspired from Greek and, and Roman ancestry, and they didn't, they didn't really have a uh, race as an idea. They had phenotypes, but that, that isn't um, right race.
1: Yeah, I think I think my point—I'm not even sure. I'm, I'm so sort of working this out. I was—I was kind of looking forward <laughs> to this conversation to, to work some of this out. But I mean, I think that any ethnic studies department. In, that you go to, you'll probably mm-hmm. get it hammered into your head that race is a modern construct.
2: Absolutely.
1: But there's always been social constructs that have defined hierarchy and class and whatnot, right? Yeah. So then the question is, okay, so before these pseudoscientists in, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries were, you know, got on about race, how did the ancient world think in terms of the, the difference between the way people looked. Mm. And with with the Romans in particular, and borrowing this from the Greeks, they were really interested in like for the most part, facial features. Mm, yeah. You know, like like you could trust someone with, you know, like <laughs> someone had large eyes. You, <laughs> it's just all it's all bullshit. But if if you <laughs> If you have large eyes, then, you know, you're trustworthy. But if you have beady little eyes, then man, you can't trust that guy.
2: It's all stupid. I mean, but, it's, it's, it's quite logical, isn't it?
1: But it's it's not any more or less stupid than, you know, skin tone or whatever. Absolutely right? not.
2: So, absolutely not. It's a little bit of that, don't we? We have uh, we have um, red hair, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so with red hair, it doesn't have sore. That's yeah. so the closest we get to it, don't we?
1: Well, and we still have carryovers of phenotypes. I think that there is still something about, like, oh, mm-hmm. BDIs can't trust that. You know, <laughs> there, there's still a little bit of that. It's not as dominant as sort of this perception of race. But mm. so th- for the ancients, and I guess I don't know, I don't want to push the analogy too much. But, it, you know, uh, Martin has said that the Andals are basically modeled after Rome, and there's several inv- indications that that's the case. Mm-hmm. So how did Roman? How did the Romans perceive these differences in how people looked? Well, what they did was they compared them to animals. So if you looked more like a lion, then you then we will lionize you. You know that's yeah. really stupid, <laughs> really stupid. Or like Caligula. Like Caligula looked like a goat, so he must have had the the moral ineptitude of a goat. Which of course it was the
2: famous moral ineptitude yeah. of a goat. <laughs>
1: Which, I mean, that's that's a lot of shade to throw on a goat, you know. <laughs> why, why are goats why are goats better than lions? I mean,
2: yeah, why why are donkeys uh, stubborn? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I think part of this is sort of this carryover of these Greek ideas of what we call physiognomy, and. Mm. And they were, you know, these were, like, people's best ideas about how to judge someone's character. But I guess the point here is that you could find differences in phenotypes even in family groups.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So even if, like, you know, you couldn't, like, for some reason, the Greeks didn't like extremes. So if you were too pale, then that that spoke badly about it, your, your character. Or if you're too dark, that spoke badly about your character. So if you're like this nice shade of coffee or whatever, then that, that was the ideal. But you could even get that between two siblings. You could get a lighter skinned or a darker skinned or someone with beady eyes or someone bigger eyes, even within
2: siblings. That kind of ties into what we said about the sisters, right? The the Stark sisters. Yeah, one Sansa of is, and Arya, right? Yeah, Sansa and Arya, right? One, one of them is described as having a, a horse face. <laughs> and and, <Poor> being, Arya. <laughs> and, then, and you know being, having northern traits with the other one is is pretty and has sudden traits so they are they are sisters
1: yeah it's interesting that a lot it, we're dealing with in these chapters how people perceive Arya. Mm-hmm. and one thing that uh my co-author aaron has pointed out a lot and i really do appreciate is that in one sense Arya is kind of ridiculed because she's got like a horse face, which I guess we're supposed to think is more Northern. Another way to think of this is that she looks a lot like Liana and, and Arya and, you know, and Liana is supposed to be this great beauty. And so it's a question of not, this isn't really a question of beauty as much as this is the, this is a question of the perception of Northern identity versus Mm. Southern identity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. and, I think there is there is an idea that the the central kingdoms kind of have and if if we can call this an ethnic identity that is more unified than the other kingdoms because no one's saying oh no this person looks like someone from the Riverlands and this like someone from the Stormlands and so to to go back to to our talk about geography I was kind of thinking about well before uh, this whole idea of social Darwinism and the idea that. Um, the construction of race. How was ethnicity defined? Right. And and for me, it was defined by geographical factors, geographical features, and but it's sort of like an, an idea of ancestry, which is more defined by whichever warlord came and, and controlled your space sure, um, yes. more than anything about genetics. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, I mean there's there's really good examples of that in real life, right? You've got in Spain, you've got in like, the Basque Country that kept their language for a really long time and kept like a separate identity. My own an ancestry, the the Bagante people in, in Cameroon, the Bagante people have an identity that is defined by the fact that uh, the Bagante people lived in the hills. And so they were really hard to invade, they went to invade them. Hmm. Um, and there was a big battle in like 1687 where um, they tried to invade them. And then it's, it's this, uh, this warlord could who pushed them back. And so he is the great ancestor of, uh, of the, of the bounty people today. And, and so you could really find that duality of, of ancestry and, uh, geographical separation that you also find with like the Welsh that didn't get invaded by the, by the Anglo-Saxon hmm. or the Scottish yeah, sure. that didn't get invaded by the Romans where like the Cornish have the same are considered as English, even though, I mean, even though really they're just as far apart from the rest of England than Wales. It so is. it's
1: it's like the stories we tell about sort of the origin stories tell you something about the people in general. Like, for instance, you, you know, your people are, you know, unbent, unbroken or whatever. Yeah. Um. But it's just a story. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's I mean, part of the ethnicity, but it's, <laughs> it is part of the constructed part of the ethnicity. Right?
2: Right. I mean, for example, <laughs> um, my, the story of, of the Bagate people is, uh, actually of the, of Babu people, to be even more pre- precise, is that the people tried to, to invade the Babu people in, in 1687. And this, this warlord called Alaku told all his soldiers to have fog come out of their penises. Um, and supposedly that made, uh, that made the area foggy. And that's how they won the war. <laughs> so that's good. You can't get more constructive than that, really. <laughs> I mean,
1: uh huh. Uh-huh. Well, I'm from San Francisco, which is famously foggy. So I wonder if there's something, something going on there too.
2: I mean, you never know. You might have to look into it. And did, did Did anyone consider this before?
1: <laughs> Not before now. <laughs> oh, that's really great. That's really great. Um so all right, so I here's my thinking. Yeah. Just like applied to like Sansa and Arya. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something about Catelyn that thinks well Sansa's really gonna thrive in the South. Yeah. There's just something about and I I don't know if it's like if it's just about her sort of ability to be a proper lady or whatever. Mm-hmm. But she looks southern, right? Yeah. Like Sansa looks more southern, and there's something about that that maybe convinces Catelyn that she's thinking, "Well, that's that, she belongs. She really belongs in a place like King's Landing, which is totally wrong." Like Sansa's yeah. horrible in King's Landing. Like, she <laughs> has a she has a horrible life. She's just a pawn for everyone. She gets pushed around. She can't do yeah, but, but for some reason, Catelyn just thinks that that's where she belongs. And I wonder if there isn't something about sort of, yeah, she's got those southern facial features.
2: Yeah, and I think maybe in the way that she's treated compared to the rest of the family when they go south, um, maybe you can have hints that actually she's considered, okay, we can keep her betrothed to the king. Um uh-huh. And would would they have done that if it was if it was if she looked like Arya? I mean, we, yeah. we don't know, right? But but perhaps there is a sense that because she looks southern, not only did did her mother consider, oh, she'll she'll, she'll be fine in the south because she looks like them, but also maybe um, maybe they treated them better. Yeah. Than huh. maybe her father.
1: But, you know, some of this is carryover from history, right? I think that. Yeah. By George, studying history, he's going to bring in all kinds of unconscious baggage from sort of a Eurocentric view of history, uh, and then some of it, you think, well, maybe some, maybe this is a conscious effort by the author. I mean, if you think about like the way that the, the Dothraki are described in the book, yeah. it's very much sort of like this is how Western people would perceive an Asian nomadic warlord. Mm-hmm. That, that's So you really have that sort of Eurocentrism in that way. And I think sometimes Martin is very conscious of it. I think he's very conscious of the way that he's described in the Dothraki. I don't know how much this sort of northern-southern stuff actually goes into the way he's separating out these cultures. Do you think that this is an intention on his part? Or do you think this is sort of this unconscious baggage that Europe had and so Game of Thrones has to have?
2: Um, I, think, and I think it is. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know, but I think it, it probably is unconscious. I don't think that he is trying to separate identities in this way. I think he just has an understanding of geopolitics. Well, when he wrote uh, Game of Thrones, he had an understanding of geopolitics that was very much in the 90s. And he took that knowledge on and then he took that understanding about how identity is shaped with um, features. But I'm not sure that that pushes into him trying to create a separate, um, like a racial hierarchy in Game of Thrones. Mm. I'm not sure, I'm, I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's kind of doing this um, unconsciously by toying with the ideas of identity and geography that we had at that time and kind of leads him to, to um, to the same conclusion that we realize now it leads you to which is probably an uncomfortable one
1: That's really well said Arthur thanks for coming on I really appreciate it man Thank you All right Steve we're wrapping up season 2 here
3: Oh what a season it was Oh man this was the doozy
1: This was a doozy The thing is is that this
3: it's it really is something like the 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 sophomore season
1: Yeah there's always a slump there right
3: you got potential for a slump, but man, we're cooking.
1: If ever a show had a potential for a slump, it's like, yeah, you just killed your main characters, dummy. Yeah,
3: <laughs> Right now, what do you do?
1: Of course, there's going to be a slump.
3: Well, yeah, because then there's there's still the like, now maybe the cynicism factor goes up, the benefit mm-hmm. of the doubt goes down. So you're you're not, yeah, you're like, well, okay, I don't know if I can trust you, right? I mean, the trust is the issue, I mm-hmm. think. So well, it's no... uh you know, a small task to try to to do what they just did. And, and it's, it's
1: impressive. So, Steve, last week I had uh, Kim Renfro on the podcast because there was quite a bit of news in the Game of Thrones fandom. And you may have seen a little bit of this news online. I know that you're you're active on social media. I'm not so much, but... Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to avoid
3: s- spoilers, of course, so it's hard to,
1: to get... Yeah, of course.
3: To even, even when you start dealing with... Uh, you know, news of of mm-hmm. prequels. It's like, well, there could be a reference here
1: and there, you know. Mm-hmm. you find out, spoiler alert, uh, Jon Snow will get a haircut at one point in the, in the yeah, see, future. Just see? I'll ruin it for you. Not ready for that. Part of the news is that George got a big old fat payday to consider a few other possible HBO prequel projects. So my, here's my hope. That he finishes his other stuff? He's not going to do that. Like, really, no one thinks he's going to finish.
3: Baller move, man. Baller move. No. <laughs> Just, yeah, I'd like to work on stuff before the thing that I, I haven't finished.
1: I mean, he's getting so much money, he could buy, like, nine different authors. Just buy them. <laughs> could be like The Running Man, where the only the best of the nine survive. That's how much money he's getting. Here's what I'm going to do, Steve. I'm going to give you the concept for each of five projects. Now, this is not. There's not only five projects. There's more projects, but I've narrowed it to five. We're calling this the the War of Five Projects. All right. I want to talk about each, and I want you to give me like what you would like to see. What would this project need to include in order to draw your interest? Okay. Okay. Here's project number one. Project number one is in the works. They're filming this right now. This is happening. It's called House of the Dragon. And here's my three-sentence synopsis. The Targaryen kings and queens are at the height of their power. they got 15 dragons and all kinds of drama between brothers and sisters. But can these dragon lords stave off civil war long enough to keep the dynasty going? So... As we've noted, you're going to get lots of Game of Thrones staples, like dragons and incest and whatnot.
3: Well, see, that's the thing. My first thought is, uh, no dragons. Call the House of Dragons. Talk about Dragon Lords. You never see the dragons. Dragons are like Vera from Cheers. I like it. There's like, a lot of talk about them. Or.
1: Can I see a shadow every now and again? <laughs> or
3: it's all dragons uh, done in the style of the old sitcom Dinosaurs. <laughs> Does it I, want, over? I want big old puffy dragons like dinosaurs, and it's uh, it's it's them. It's like they're going to work, and like the dragon lords are are like their bosses, and they're just they're just. For those talking of about... you who
1: don't remember, imagine like a <laughs> imagine like a sports mascot who has this yeah, a family at home. Like let's say a dinosaur mascot. Like you're at the Rockies game. And the dinosaur mascot like goes home, but doesn't take off the costume. Right? What do you even call it? It's not like claymation. What? It was just the costume, right? Yeah,
3: it was. Uh, it was like, like Bear in the Big Blue House.
1: It was,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: or King of Queens.
1: Bear in the Big Blue Dragon House.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I like that idea, right? I mean, it's it's you know full laugh track, whole thing. Just, I mean, obviously still incest because mm-hmm. uh, you got to know your audience. Yeah,
1: if it's, it's they could just... film House of the Dragon as like an 80s sitcom, that would that would work. <laughs> I love it. And you could actually call it King of Queens if you want to. <laughs> All right, second project. This is happening. It's a Broadway show, Steve. Is it a musical? I I, I don't know, but I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's my synopsis. This is a Broadway play. It features a younger Ned Stark, his sister Lyanna, and her betrothed Robert Baratheon. It's set at a tournament at Harrenhal, where a 15-year-old prodigy, Jamie Lannister, wins his way into the Kingsguard, the youngest knight ever to do so. And this, of course, enrages his father, because Kingsguards cannot inherit land or titles. mm
3: yeah, definitely definitely in and it has to be Nathan Lane as 15-year-old Jamie Lannister.
1: Nathan Lane is like 60 years old.
3: He's he's a genius. He'll figure it out.
1: A lot of makeup.
3: Surprisingly none. Uh just everybody else is the problem. Can I get
1: age. Matthew Broderick as Tywin? <laughs>
3: I would love that, right? I mean, it'd be even better if it was like almost like a "Look Who's Talking" type situation, where like the fifteen-year-old they have an actor, but it's voiced by Nathan Lane the whole time.
1: All right, okay. So, and and if it could be a musical, I mean, it would. Have you be... ever
3: seen a Broadway play?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I'm into, I like I like Les Miz, I like Hamilton, I like yeah, I like I I, I as a kid. I really love the television production of The Music Man. Did you ever see that? No. Fiddler on the Roof. I'm a big fan. Uh, have
3: Have you seen these live?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, the best I did for Hamilton was I saw a live performance in San Francisco. Okay. You're not a big Broadway guy.
3: I don't know if I've ever seen a play outside of a high school play.
1: Really? Okay. Well. Is it the musical thing? Are you into, is, is, do you have something against musicals?
3: It's, I don't want people on stage to even inadvertently make eye
1: contact with me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that way? I feel that way at a comedy club. I feel like if I'm going to go into a comedy club, there's no way I'm sitting in the front row. Yeah,
3: no, I get that. And like, and I understand, I mean, I've done that. I've picked on people a little bit and. From from the stage, but it's like I, the medium is such that it's like, ah, it's you and a guy, and you know, it's that guy, right? But like, I mean, if you're up there going, "Hey, I'm," it's not as interesting. Like, hey, this guy's doing comedy, and this guy thinks he's
1: pipping. So yeah, I mean, let's just talk about the rules of the comedy club. If I go into a comedy club and I sit in the front row, I should just expect at some point I'm going to have to talk to the guy on stage.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would at least, I would at least prepare yourself for the. It could simply be a rhetorical type situation where you just, you know, yeah, you're already the burden at a minimum is you you, you shouldn't go to the bathroom (laughs) during the set um, because I'll talk about how you're pooping the entire time you're gone.
1: Sure. Now, is there a. Am I safe anywhere in the club? Like if I sit midway back, or at what point yeah, am I safe?
3: I think I think if you have a pretty good sense of where the light, like if it's a pretty well lit spotlight type situation, you you become a, a silhouette. So that's the other part of the reason. Part of the other reason why, I mean, not only is it the proximity of the people in the front row, but that also can be the the sight range for the performer because if if the spotlight is proper, you're you're probably pretty blind to to
1: most of the room. Yeah, so you could be safe if you're unseen. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm in a better mood. I'm like, yeah, fine, if they want to do crowd work, I'll play along. But sometimes I don't want to be in, I'm not in the mood. I just want to sit there and and laugh. Yeah, no, I get you. I guess what I'm trying to say, Steve, is fuck you. Okay, that's fair. All right, next project. This is called Nine Voyages. Now, I've not filmed any pilot for this. This is just a possibility. Okay. Lord corliss Valerion, a.k.a. the Sea Snake, is played by Steve Toussaint. Corliss is as daring as he is wealthy. He swashbuckles his way from sea to sea and into the heart of every woman he meets, and maybe a few fanboys too.
3: So this is, is this a character we see in the series,
1: this one currently? This is a character that we have not met, but we will meet this character in House of the Dragon. So they're they are planning a spinoff uh,
3: of a movie
1: of a, of a show that hasn't even aired yet. Whoa! That's how confident they are about this.
3: This guy. would be like if there was a like a a big ragu show where it this was, is like they were they were like in and the spin wo- spinoff yes. of Happy Days, and then Carmine
1: gets his own. This is even before there was a Levert and Shirley. That they would say, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the big ragu.
0: As that a child, is going to be ragu. in production.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not as a child, as an old man. Oh. They're going to come. I just figured this was
3: going in the young Sheldon uh, type. <laughs> just the young ragu.
1: Beyond ragu. <laughs> Beyond. It's everyone that... It's the, the, the big carmine ragu. multiverse. Yes. <laughs> It's all about. It's all about. It's like Better Call Ragu. It's like all about the the minimal characters around the furniture. It's like
3: multiplicity. It's just Carmine uh, in different, just in different scenarios simultaneously. Um, uh, so far, hey, I mean, by the was... way,
1: uh, I got I got a, a a little bit of fan mail uh, for you, Steve. I got someone saying. Uh, I'm so excited that Steve used the the chachi reference <laughs> comparing chachi to Danny. I sent it to my friend telling him that I'm not the only one that makes this association. Oh my gosh,
3: <laughs> that's incredible!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Oh, that's good. Yeah,
3: so okay, nine, next nine, one. Nine, nine voyages um, yeah. sounds pretty sexy. Probably should be called nine and a half voyages.
1: So that's all they would have to do? Yeah, just just make it super,
3: just just get it it erotic, and
1: uh, and I'm in. All right. So uh, next one is, uh, again, keeping with the nautical theme, this one is called 10,000 Ships. Okay. A millennia before the War of the Five Kings, a princess named Nymeria leads her people into exile. They sail from island to island until they finally land in southern Westeros. Now I'm excited about anything with ships. You know that. I know. You know this,
3: that about me. This seems this seems like almost I it almost like too much for
1: you. Too much ships? Like, I mean the ten thousand. There's ten thousand. Yeah.
3: Like I mean I could see you like this is just like an over overload, right? Like I mean, you you think you're a fan of anything until you get too much of it.
1: So it's like, I, maybe like on episode two, I'm thinking, I thought I was going to like this many ships. Yeah, like 4,500
3: ships seems more doable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying decrease the ship count. Yeah. And you're, you're in.
3: They're setting themselves up, right? I mean, or I want this to be like, I need Matthew Modine and, and Gina Davis, like
1: Cutthroat Island. One thing about ships that I like is that they have names, I like to yeah. know the name of the ship. That's 10,000 names. That's too many. It's too many names. You're really devaluing the name of any one ship if you have 10,000 of them. Yeah. I mean, then you have Like imagine league. if like the starship enterprise was like zipping through space with 10,000 ships. Mm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care what it's called. Right.
3: It's hard enough to keep track of all these characters. Now I got to keep track of boats? Nah. I'm, I might be out on this one.
1: That's too bad. I'm, I'm not
3: that strong a swimmer, man. We've talked about this. That's, I so water that. water makes me nervous.
1: Okay, this is another show that's a possibility. All we have is the title. We don't know anything else about it. It's called Flea Bottom. Mm-hmm. We know nothing about this project except for its name. Presumably, it'll be set in the slums of King's Landing, featuring the brothels, bums, and bad boys. Of the filthiest place in all the seven kingdoms.
3: Yeah, this this has got to be a reality show where they basically recreate Flea Bottom. and it's like Survivor, only way more STDs.
1: <laughs> and who would you like to see in in uh, in this? Oh,
3: it got it's everyday people, dude. Uh, would you, you know like eventually, would you
1: like to be featured?
3: <laughs> eventually you'll have like a celebrity version, right? Like you've we've seen that with other reality shows, like a big brother. Um, I mean, there's no way you're keeping Corey Feldman out of this.
1: Corey Feldman is the first person you cast in this. Yeah,
3: he gets in there and it's just like, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I don't know a ton about Flea Bottom, except it's just he's just he's constantly uh luring people in to buy his wares.
1: I got some questions for you. I got some questions for me. Mm-hmm. You wanna? You wanna go first? You want me to go first?
3: Uh, I, I think. Did you? Did you win first last time? I can go I, first. I
1: believe time. I did. Steve, this first question is from Steve. So this is from Steve to Steve. Oh. Steve, what is something a hobby, a skill, or a guilty pleasure, etc. You've added during your routine in COVID.
3: Oh, oh,
1: that's a, that, that's a, that's a powerful question. It's a good question, Steve.
3: Yeah. To my routine. I mean, obviously, well, I mean, I think the obvious one for me is, um, uh, mask coordination
1: with the shoes. <laughs> well, this is good to know because I think you have like 37 pairs of shoes, right? Yeah.
3: Somewhere in that neighborhood,
1: maybe more now. I think things have changed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, Do you so then the question is do you have that number of masks to match
3: no no but like so like it depends right i mean i just i would say less of like hey let's coordinate the mask but let's let's make sure to not clash right like Mm -hmm. so when i'm wearing my uh christopher cross uh flamingo mask right which is Mm -hmm. essentially the album cover of uh, the self-titled album, uh, which, you know, of course celebrated, I believe it's 40th anniversary. And I was supposed to, uh, to go to the uh, Christopher Cross concert, the 40th anniversary concert, but then you know wow. COVID canceled that. Uh, so that mask is green and it's
1: got some pink on it. I so I COVID almost canceled Christopher Cross.
3: It certainly, it certainly tried, but that guy <laughs> is a fighter. It's one thing that he's been known for. It's uh, toughness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and so like that one, I'm like, I got to be careful with what I wear, obviously, um, because like I feel like, I, as I've said many times in the past, that the uh, shoes are the the punctuation mark to this uh sentence that is your outfit
1: Hmm, and hmm.
3: so now we've added a little something to the ensemble right and i think it's i think it's I mean if you've got a white mask or a black mask you're probably Mm -hmm. doing fine but as soon as you start mixing in the color masks, you have to just Mm -hmm. you have to be considerate of everything that you're doing i think i think it's easy to think that masks are this temporary thing because this is not going to be who we are going forward or or uh, you know ad, ad nauseum but as of right now, it is who you are, and I think you need to well, show that level
1: of care. I appreciate that perspective. Now, speaking of someone who like walks around with about two, two, maybe three pairs of shoes in any given year, I feel like I'm just wearing commas on my feet all mm. the all the time. I don't. But you said it's the punctuation. I don't have a repertoire of punctuation marks.
3: So your 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 shoes are like everyone's looking at going and
1: and what yeah
3: exa- it's like yeah.
1: It, they're like a, a misplaced ellipsis steve
3: mm-hmm. and here's the thing even a question mark is fine i think because i think
1: <laughs> <laughs> i've tried question marks on my feet they don't work out very well
3: i think i think when people see it and they're like if if you've got people going huh um that's still a reaction and i think but if you but you at least it, it provides some like now now the burden's on them to provide the answer <laughs>
1: All right, so that's good. That's a good, uh, good answer. I, I, I was not anticipating that, but that's, that's
3: interesting. Do you think it would be more masturbatory?
1: Um, I don't know how to answer that, and okay. so I won't. Fair. This is a question for me. This is from Baton Rouge Billy.
3: Oh, man. So Come far, on, so Come on, Billy.
1: Good. That's lovely. <sighs> Baton Rouge Billy. What a
3: great... I mean, look. I don't want to alienate. I mean, I've already alienated Philadelphia last season, but mm-hmm. uh, Baton Rouge. Is, what does is Baton Rouge stand for, or what does it stand for? What does it mean? How does it translate? Something to, red, red baton.
1: Yeah, it means red baton. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> knows that, Steve. Yeah,
3: Baton Rouge. I mean, you can It sounds like it. It sounds like molasses coming off the tongue.
1: What I would love is that for Baton Rouge, Billy to like live in like Topeka.
3: <laughs> That's right. He just <laughs> He's never even
1: been to Baton Rouge, but it just sounds badass. Alright, so Baton Rouge Billy S. What would you say is the single most impactful decision made by a single character? The decision that had the greatest consequences for the greatest number of other characters. My vote would be this is still Baton Rouge Billy registering his vote. My vote would be for Catelyn's decision to capture Tyrion, if she hadn't. Jamie wouldn't have wounded Ned. Ned could have resigned peacefully and gone back up north. Rob never becomes king. Never entangles himself with Walder Frey. Arya is never orphaned. Theon never takes Winterfell. And Bran never goes into exile. Etc. Etc. That's a really strong case, Billy. All that. Spoiler alert. Yeah, all that wouldn't happen if Catelyn hadn't taken Tyrion. Um, so that's Billy's vote. Here's my answer, Billy. I can, I think I can do you one better. Illyrio gives three eggs to Danny. If Danny doesn't get eggs, she doesn't get dragons. She doesn't get dragons. You got you, know, you got nothing. I think dragons are everything. So that that's my that's my take, Billy.
3: Uh, Baton Rouge is uh, it means French. Uh, it means red stick.
1: Red stick. Well, I wasn't that far off. No. Yeah. I think that Billy could have been named for something other than his geography.
3: Well, if if he had just gone by uh, Red Stick Billy, um, we wouldn't automatically associate him with uh,
1: Baton Rouge uh, per se. No, no, we'd associate him with his stick.
3: We'd have a lot more questions. Yeah. A lot more questions. <laughs> it's, it's like, hey, is, is he an excited dog?
1: Uh, I, I'm sorry, Billy. I didn't think that. I'm sorry, I think Baton Rouge. You, I don't think that you thought it was going this direction, and I couldn't stop him. Uh, there's no way I can stop it, and it's too funny <laughs> to cut out, so it's in there. Oh, man, my poor dogs. <laughs> a lot of
3: a lot of Baton Rouge refs. This is
1: Steve speaking of dogs. Um yes. This is from Walker of Dragons, and this is not a. Question. It is just a statement that you should hear.
3: <laughs> Don't drown! Don't drown any more dogs.
1: Walker Dragon says Steve poodles are psychotic. A friend, uh, a friend who is a canine geneticist, okay. calls them bundles of mental illness. Then again, liking poodles does not surprise me, given your gentle sadist persona. <laughs>
3: <laughs> poodle's psychotic this is this is wild this, this is, is like from
1: a... someone who embraces science steve
3: yeah i yeah i guess so um uh this is news to me um uh but
1: i'll allow it Maybe you like the you like the I think that you like the chaos. How, how many dogs do you have yeah, in your house? Yeah,
3: that's fair. That's a five five dogs. Two of them. When
1: you foods. have five dogs, one of them being psychotic, you're probably not even going to notice.
3: Well, the thing is, is Django is uh, Django's got human eyes. He ain't. We don't treat him like a dog um, because that would be folly.
1: Did you say he has human eyes? Clearly, like in a jar, like he keeps them. <laughs> <head? laughs> In a locket, um, as a keepsake. Nobody,
3: nobody that meets Django assumes he's all dog. They assume that there is uh, that there is some sort of a karmic reincarnated punishment going on, and that like mm. the way the way my wife puts it is there is a human in there that was born as a dog, is aware that he's a human as a dog, but can but can't communicate. Mm in any other fashion other than a dog and still has like dog like desires, but human regret. So even when he's like, I'm going to lick myself in this very upsetting fashion for a long period of time. At the same time, he hates it.
1: Hmm. I, my dog is half poodle and she won't stop looking at me. Hmm. And I don't know what she wants to tell me. Like I'll take her out. She, she she has all of her needs met but she just wants i think she would just love it if we could just stare into each other's eyes all day <laughs> and i've got other things that i could be doing
3: yeah i it, you you assume it's it's a gaze i assume uh she's, she's quietly pe- judging me <laughs> she's judging you she's peering into your soul there may be something supernatural yeah, we have our new our new poodle kiddo. She's uh, she's young and she's she's wild. Um, Is
1: she psychotic? Uh,
3: yeah, I probably. I mean, I don't know. Like it's again to your point. Like I mean, when you have that much chaos, who's to who's to say? Um, and 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 I mean, you and
1: like and I think you like it. You, there's a little bit of you that likes the chaos.
3: I do. I mean, I go to house. Oh my gosh, I go to house with people that have dogs and they're so boring. I'm like, dude, just eat it. Like why, why would you why, what what like they're like, oh, look at how sweet, and like the dog is dull, just why, why would you have a dull dog, why would you be happy about it? Don't
1: I'd, be, show me so, I'd be so happy with a dull dog, I would be happy Ugh. with I would be happy with a dog that just would wouldn't look at me, <laughs> just just look at something else, stare at the wall, just look at something
3: else, like so you want a dog, you want a traumatized dog. I, I, I'm just I'm vexed over this. See, I I see well, and I guess my my retort was going to be, oh well, you know, because poodles are highly intelligent. Well, that doesn't necessarily preclude them from uh, being psychotic, though.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's, I think I think it probably goes hand in hand.
3: Yeah. So that. So yeah, it could very well be that the reason why I like them is the reason
1: why I shouldn't. Uh-huh. I'll handle it. Uh- name my dog Red Stick Billy next time. Um, this is a question from Mikael, and this is for me. Over the course of the series, Jamie went from a villain to a gray character with glimpses of heroism. And some would argue one of the more sympathetic characters in the entire story by the end. Could you see a similar arc, however unlikely, with Cersei? Wow. Could Cersei be transformed by George Martin's magic from the person that we know and love to hate to someone that's more sympathetic in the same way that Jamie has been? I think it's possible. I think it's, it's within Martin's talent to do so, although I think it's a tall order and I don't think it'll happen. And here's why I think this. So, Jamie's a bad guy, a villain from the very beginning, because he pushes Bran out the window. But eventually, you know, Bran lives, and we don't really know Bran yet. Um, Cersei, that would be a late bend in her character arc. A very late bend. And, on top of that, she tried to kill her favorite character. She tried to kill Tyrion. She's actively pursuing him to kill him. And it's hard. It's hard for that person to be sympathetic. What do you think, Steve?
3: Yeah, I mean, she's not. I mean, from everything I can see so far, um, she seems to be the least complicatable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and that isn't to say that that they can't pull the old bait and switch on me later, because I think we're even seeing glimpses now of of. Um, I mean, Jamie's an interesting character like there's something about him even though he's still in my mind he's a scoundrel and a a, uh, attempted child killer but i i get the sense that there's a necessity with her um and that there's a relentlessness to her yeah well and it it, i mean it's his it's his choice to make right so it's i think you you can pull it off if you decide you want to pull it off and if your decision is to not pull it off then you paint it in such a way that 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 becomes uh whatever it is, is an inevitability.
1: Steve, this next question for you. It's from Jennifer. Have you ever oh, thanks used for calling? Yeah. Thanks for uh, writing in Jennifer. Have you ever used props or done impressions on stage? If so, what has worked the best for you? What hasn't worked? Um, in terms of impressions,
3: you know, it's funny cause I, this is a discussion that comes up a lot is I, I do impressions and you know, but not on stage. I, I think you're the only for
1: your friends, basically. I
3: do them for my friends. I, I do a lot of impressions of like Bay Area comics. I do a lot of impressions of of people like that, um, which you know you can't really do on the stage unless you unless you're following one of them. Mm-hmm. Um I have on occasion, very few occasions, used a puppet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what kind of puppet?
3: It's uh it's a puppet of a of kind of an old-timey marshal.
1: Wait, is it like uh like Sesame Street or
3: it's more like uh it's I guess it would probably be more in the in the muppet vein. I mean it's it's a human. Okay. Um and he has a little a little soft little gun that's in a holster that you cuz you can do the hands and the head.
1: And what and what what do you what have you done with this
3: puppet? um well that's the gag is I don't do anything with him. <laughs> he just sits on my lap and laughs at my jokes silently.
1: <laughs> and how has this uh, worked for you? Uh
3: the first time I did it uh it was pretty well received. And I and I will say that there was a pretty good setup. I mean the the uh the environment in which the show took place it was pretty good crowds and a lot of comics and and uh and i showed up late
1: so you were do- you were doing this for the back of the room is what
3: you Yeah saying. but it worked pretty well for the front of the room as well right. because because uh the the context i sh- i show up late there was room on the list for one last i i just decided to go last mm-hmm. so and i'm just i'm just wandering around the room you know having a drink talking to people and i've got this this uh gym bag around me and, and everyone's like what's in the bag I'm like, eh, i don't know, don't worry about it and so the, the anticipation between the audience and the <laughs> comics was starting to build as I, you know, kind of as the room would go around. like was like, well, what is in the bag? That's a comic. What's got in the bag? So I get up on stage and it's finally time and everyone and just every it was it was crazy. Like people were coming in from outside. People stopped playing.
1: Pool people games. had to see what was in the bag.
3: What's in the bag. And so I yeah. pull out the puppet and the puppet immediately gets thunderous applause just because it's I mean, just the idea of a puppet. And I just. Uh, I, I first thing I said was. Uh, I'm not a ventriloquist.
1: <laughs> and then.
3: Uh, <laughs> and then I would tell a joke.
1: That's how you let it. You let it. You let it with. I'm not a ventriloquist.
3: And then I, I, I told. I told a joke. Uh, I let. I let it sit for just a just a just a maybe a half beat. And then the puppet uh, opens his mouth and starts shaking his head like he's laughing.
1: <laughs> yeah see, I think this may be giving people a false impression of what your comedy is like you're I would not consider you absurdist, no, no, so this was really kind of a departure and and maybe that's maybe why it worked.
3: I think that made have had it
1: and what if fl- the flea bottom one was like a uh like the Muppets take flea bottom? <laughs> I'd love to see Kermit Kermit the Frog enter a tournament.
3: And it's super graphic. I mean, like. To
1: win Piggy's favor.
3: Yeah, and then he eats her out graphically.
2: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Kermit!
0: Oh, gosh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, So bad. (laughs) He wasn't kosher last night. (laughs) The, The best thing about this is that I didn't know you did a Miss Piggy, but it's a pretty good Miss Piggy.
3: And and the thing is, I mean, if you're anything like me and and you've gone ahead and pictured it, it's a lot like how when Cookie Monster pretends to eat a cookie.
2: God.
1: (laughs) The visuals. You're killing me, man.
3: This is for your outtakes.
1: I don't think we can... Honestly, I don't know if we can put that on. A few weeks ago, I asked a question related to the shape of Electric Boogaloo. Did you like the super nerds versus the super fan interviews? I asked about a balance between new voices and familiar voices. And I was also asking about show-only folks, if people might be just listening to the Steve portions. So not everyone agreed. However, by and large... Most of you think that the scholarly voices are really what makes the podcast distinct, which is good for me because because i'm a I'm an egghead, and that's what I do so I like that portion of the podcast. I feel like getting a perspective from someone who's a specialist in gender studies or disability studies or linguism is always going to be um Really important. A lot of you have mentioned that you like it when with the when I bring on the medievalists because, of course, they bring a lot to the table relative to the, the social and cultural background of the text. I plan on continuing to do that and, of course, peppering in super fans like uh, Kim Renfro and... Aaron and whatnot is seems to be uh, pretty popular as well. Some of you have voiced a concern that it's difficult to keep up with the show rewatch because I don't do a synopsis for each episode. So here's what I'm going to do: I'm going to try to include a short synopsis of the episode before I begin the Steve interview. Hopefully, that will enhance your experience. If it's only a few seconds, it's not going to take away from the virtue of that section. Which, in my view, is always just to find something funny to talk about. So I will try to add that based on some of your feedback. I will mention again that subscribing, sharing an episode with a friend, shouting us out on social media, writing a review, these are all things that will help us grow. And that's all for this week.